So a man approached Socrates to ask the philosopher how he had come to possess so much knowledge and understanding. Socrates proceeded to walk the man down to the seashore. He walked him out into the waters, and then he forced the man's head under the waves. When the man's resistance was all but gone, Socrates then laid him out on the shore and returned to town. Once the man had regained his strength, he went and relocated Socrates to ask the philosopher why he would almost drown him like that. And Socrates responded, when you were under the water, what was the one thing you wanted more than anything? And the man replied, I wanted air. Socrates then said, the individual who desires learning as much as he desires air will desperately pursue it. Well, I would tell you this morning that you and I need Jesus more than even the air that we breathe. It is a need that sounds out over and over throughout the pages of the Gospels. Let me ask you, are you desperate for Jesus? This morning, I would specifically draw our attention to Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 51. Luke 9, beginning at verse 37. This is the word of our God. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth. It departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. They were all amazed at the majesty of God, but while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. It was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest, and Jesus, perceiving the thought of their hearts, took a little child and set him beside him and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not forbid him. For he who is not against us is on our side. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Notice first, in the valley, we see Christ identifying with us. Do not let the immediate context of our passage escape you. 
the very one who God the Father had announced as his beloved son on the Mount of Transfiguration in verses 28 to 36 comes back down into the valley. And in my mind, this serves as a perfect bridge between the seasons of Thanksgiving and Christmas. I say that because what should you and I be most thankful for? That God came among us. Just as we would physically die for lack of air, we would spiritually die apart from Jesus leaving his glorious mountain to come into our faithless valley. And that's why we celebrate Advent beginning next Sunday. Jesus Christ entered into our existence, fully God and fully man. One of the highlights of my life thus far is in having baptized my oldest son. Pray that soon I will be able to baptize my two younger children as well. By far, it is the most important role that I will ever play as a father. To participate in some way in the leading of my children to Jesus. I will tell you that if you are a parent, it is your most important role too. My faith is by no means perfect. Based on the parallel text in Mark, neither was this boy's father's faith either. But what this father knew, I know. The only hope for our children resides in the person of Jesus Christ. Do not let Luke's wider literary context escape you. The gospel writer emphasizes in verse 38 that the boy was this man's only son. In Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 15, the gospel writer emphasizes that the young man from Nain, who Christ also restores to life, was the widow's only son. Then in Luke 8, 42, the gospel writer emphasizes that the child of Jairus who Jesus raises from the dead in verse 54 was his only daughter. And perhaps I read too much into it, but I believe Jesus held great empathy for situations involving beloved only children. Empathy, after all, is being able to personally relate to another's situation. And notice in this third instance, before Christ delivers this man's only son, that a demon has its moment. The demon throws the boy to the ground in a violent spasm. There is much suffering for the child. And any loving dad knows that when our sons and our daughters suffer, we suffer too. But the work of the demon does not win, and Satan will not prevail over God's only begotten son either. You see, Satan would violently nail Jesus to a tree. He has his moment, which leads to greater suffering within the triune Godhead than anyone could ever possibly fathom. But the work of Satan does not win. 
The Father delivers His only begotten Son. I tell you that Christ was indeed crucified for your sin, but He was raised in power on the third day. Do not simply express astonishment as the crowd does in verse 43. Do not simply intellectually assent to this truth. You must accept Jesus as Messiah, Savior, and Lord of your life. Because second... In the valley, we see Christ intervening for us. The word intervening, it means to come between so as to prevent a result or to alter a result in a course of events. What would have happened to this father's son had Jesus not intervened for him? In the parallel passage in Mark chapter 9, we read that the demon often threw the boy both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But the boy's father says, if you, Jesus, can do anything, have compassion on us, help us. Plainly stated, apart from Jesus' intervention, the boy would have been destroyed. And that is what Satan wants. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, The wicked one roams about us like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. Satan hates you. He hates your family. He wants to destroy and to devour you. How can you and I be saved? How can our children be saved? Luke means for us to visualize Christ coming down from the splendor of his deity in order to glorify the Father through full obedience in his humanity as our Redeemer. I say that because Luke Chapter 9, verse 51, explains how Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, where according to Luke 18, 31 to 33, Jesus knew full well what would happen. This means that Luke spends around 10 chapters from 9, verse 51, to 19, verse 28, with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem to the Passover and ultimately to his cross. And from the time that Jesus comes down the mountain of glory at Luke 9 verse 37 to the time that he ascends to the Father again in glory at Luke 24, 50 to 53, the disciples have much to learn. In one particular school, a principal protested to a superintendent about his not earning a certain promotion. Principal noted, I've had about 25 years of experience. No, the superintendent said, that's where you're wrong, Joe. You have had one year of experience a total of 25 times. You see, the disciples have been with Jesus for a bit of time, but Luke 9 verse 45 tells us they still did not understand. It is as if they had a lot of experience but little to show for it. Michael Wilcock asked, what then can Jesus do with a group of disciples still so unbelieving, so slow-witted, so swollen-headed, and so narrow-minded, except to take them with him on another year's course of teaching?
So finally, in the valley, we see Christ instructing us. Christ instructs us in matters of faith. The faithless people in this text refer to Jesus' disciples, like us. I mean, as, as parents who wonder if their children will ever take on more responsibility for themselves, or like teachers who wonder when their students will learn to follow instructions better or keep their things organized. <laughs> Jesus longed for his disciples to live out their faith more fully. And that carries over to the church today, too. So we must not miss the main point that's at play here. Our takeaway should never center around trusting, should center around trusting the Lord to do the spiritual work that he can do if and when we have faith. Faith in Christ to deliver us from the power of sin. Faith in Christ to overcoming lingering temptation to sin, faith in Christ to advance the gospel in any village and among, among any people, faith in Christ to forgive those who wound us or reject us like the Samaritans that you find a few verses later, faith in Christ to defeat the attacks of the wicked one. And all this is possible because the Christ of the mountain comes down into the valley of our lives. Our faith is set upon a God of glory who willingly sets his sights upon a cross of shame. While it might have been easy for the disciples, especially for Peter, James, and John, who had just been up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, to focus on Christ's majesty. But Jesus says, let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Here, Christ instructs us in matters of focus. Where the disciples lacked the greatest degree of understanding was when Jesus talks about his crucifixion. But Christ calls for his disciples, he calls for you and me, to keep Calvary at the center of discipleship. It's why the Apostle Paul said to the church of Corinth, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. The cross must remain at the center of our family and church life. The cross must remain at the center of our evangelism. The cross must remain at the center of our stewardship and giving. The cross must remain at the center of our service in the local and worldwide community. As disciples, we must learn to follow after the grace of Jesus, which always goes out to those who are in the valley. That is why he would come down from the mount in Luke chapter 9. That is why he would not come down from his cross in Luke chapter 23. I love what John Phillips says about this passage. He writes, much people are always in the valley. 
That is why you and I must come down from the mount. The mountaintop experiences of life are thrilling enough, but the real work awaits you and me in the valley where hurting people are. And so in this way, Christ instructs us in matters of following. You see, rabbis of that day generally ignored children because they were considered small. They were considered insignificant. Children at that time had no power. They had no status. They had no rights. They were, in fact, widely regarded as disposable. But that was not so with Jesus. Christ always embraced children, and he uses the children to instruct his disciples in this third way about what it means to follow him. True greatness in the eyes of God comes when we do not concern ourselves with place, our title, our recognition, our power, but when we show a concern for those who some people might regard as disposable. Charles Colson witnessed the corruption of those who sought a worldly kingdom of place, title, recognition, and power when he served in the Nixon administration. But when Colson met Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord, he came to see an eternal kingdom patterned after the cross. He writes, Jesus served others first. He spoke to those whom no one spoke. He dined with the lowest members of society. He touched the untouchables. He had no throne, no crown, no bevy of servants or armored guards. Kings and presidents and prime ministers, you see, they surround themselves with minions who rush ahead, swing the doors wide, and stand at attention as they wait for those who are great to pass by. Ah, but King Jesus said that he himself stands at the door and knocks, patiently waiting to enter your life. Let me then suggest two lessons to learn in following Jesus that I try to constantly communicate to my children. Always stay humble and kind. One, always Stay humble. The man casting out demons that John asked about, the man who was doing ministry, you might say, in a bit different way than the disciples, was, according to Jesus, not to be frowned upon. I think the principle is an important one to remember any time we look at other people who are actively serving Jesus only to frown upon their approach. Mind you, I am not referring to anyone who waters down the gospel, and I'm not referring to anyone who neglects or denies the fundamental doctrines of the faith, but I am referring to those who see things differently than you and I in our approach to the gospel work. There are various ways to lead a church. There are various ways to teach a Sunday school class. There are different ways to interpret certain theological teachings. There are various ways to enter into worship. You don't have to just worship in one particular way. There are various methods of encouraging and equipping people for ministry. Whenever we perceive something differently than others in the church, we always, always need to ask ourselves, is it really our God-given responsibility in this moment to address it? 
Is it really something that I need to speak out about? Sometimes we just need to exercise humility by keeping silent, lest in our misguided zeal, we actually get in the way of what God wants to do. So preparing this message, I realized, you know, last, last Sunday, I was a bit tenacious about my position regarding programs in the church. It might come across as spiritual hubris and no doubt ministry and mission programs can better equip believers to advance the cause of Jesus. So I need to be humbled in the positions that I take. In what way might you need to be humbled in a position that you take? Make no mistake, other Christians are not the enemy. Satan is our enemy. And we should do everything we can to encourage other Christians in the battle against the wicked one, not battle amongst ourselves. Two, always stay kind. Everything we have is a gift of God's grace. One of the best ways for us to show our gratitude for his gift of Christ is by loving people who can so easily become overlooked, people who the world might regard as disposable. So I would say, regardless of our method, regardless of our perspective, that we should be encouraging and equipping people in gospel-minded kindness. That's why we emphasized last Sunday that we need to show mercy and justice toward orphans and street children across the globe, not just in the month of November, but every month. We need to visit prisoners and reach out to them in various ways with God's redeeming love. We need to help people with disabilities reach their full potential and find their God-given purpose. We need to extend hospitality to immigrants, to refugees, and international students. We need to visit the widow and care for them. We are called to give to people who have nothing to give to us in return. That is what Jesus did for you and me, isn't it? He gave to us when we had nothing that we could give to him in return. And it cost him everything. Basically, what I'm saying is that each of us need to get involved in something. We need to get involved in some way with what Jesus Christ was doing when he entered into our valley. We need to imitate the Christ who came into our valley. Sooner or later, though, sooner or later, as Christians, we will likely demonstrate a lack of faith, a lack of focus, a lack of proper following. Who in here has not had a lack of faith at some point in your time as a disciple? Me too. Who in here has not had a time in which you lacked a proper focus as a disciple? And who in here has got mixed up in terms of what you were pursuing rather than who you were following? Who among us are not unlike the disciples that we read about 
in this account? I know I am. Here's the beautiful thing. Christ came into the valley to save that boy who would have died apart from him. He came into the valley to save you from your sin too. And here's the other beautiful thing. Christ doesn't give up on his disciples. He continues to teach them. He continues to be with them. You know, the hardest part, there are numerous hard parts about preaching, but you know what the hardest part is? I preach sermons that I don't live up to. Wow, that's convicting. It's the hardest part. Every week I am convicted to the core of my being about the way in which as a disciple I fail my king. But he never fails me. And that's why I need him more even than the air I breathe. How about you? How much do you need Jesus today? Amen. Pray with me. Christ, we need you. Oh, every hour we need you. Where we fail, we ask for forgiveness. Where we falter, we ask for strength. Today, Holy Spirit, just as we are, come, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, grant to us encouragement and equip us with the love of the one who came into our valley. His name is Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.